Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. We now begin a series of four lectures on the eternal destiny of the righteous and the wicked, including the kingdom and the judgment. For today, we are going to focus on what God promises for his own people in the age to come. We'll get to the other category later. We'll cruise through the entire Bible, right from Genesis to Revelation, making key stops along the way to understand the golden thread woven throughout Scripture of the kingdom of God. Here now is Podcast 166, Theology Part 5, Kingdom Hope. This is part of a two-part series on eschatology, kingdom hope, annihilationism. Okay, those are the two places that people can possibly go at the final judgment. You can either enter into the kingdom or you can suffer the judgment of God. Traditional Christians label these as heaven and hell, but biblically, they're called the kingdom, and I guess you could still use the word hell, but... It depends on how you define hell. And we're going to look at that next, but we'll look at the kingdom right now. I call it the kingdom hope because the kingdom is more than just something that happens in the future when Jesus comes back. However, this is not the kingdom of God class. And in the, in the kingdom of God class, we really unpack the whole understanding of the kingdom, which would take way too long to do right here. So I'm just going to be very focused on the future aspect of the kingdom. But the kingdom is also the gospel we preach, and it's also the way of life that we live. And we'll hold that for another time. As far as the word eschatology goes, does anyone know already what that means? The study of end times. Right, the study of the end. Eschatos is the Greek word for last or end. And so eschatology is your view of the end. Everybody has an eschatology. Most people don't know that word, but they have an opinion of what's going to happen in the end of the world. How many movies have you seen where the world came to an end? Where there was some sort of cataclysmic, destructive climax, right? All right, so when it comes to the kingdom of God and the future aspect of it, First off, I want to tell you, I did not grow up with this belief in, in the kingdom of God. It's something that I learned as a teenager. And uh, I, I think I mentioned that to you yesterday. Did I mention that to you yesterday? Yeah. Uh, so you have to forgive me if I get a little excessively excited about this subject, because to me it's still like really something that matters and is incredibly important. And I think it should be to you too, whether you were born believing in this or not, because this is something that was really important to Jesus. Flip over to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in the beginning, literally, with the first sentence in the whole Bible there. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So you see that in verse 1 again? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You'll notice as you look through Genesis, that there are certain 
phrases that repeat. Have you noticed that before? Like wh what phrases repeat? Do you know? Um, it is good. Right? It is good repeats. Other phrases repeat like the next day. Let there be, yeah, okay. So here's Genesis 1 on the screen. And I don't think you can read that, but that's okay. I just want to show you the patterns kind of visually here. This is verse 3, and God said. Verse 6, God said. Verse 9, God said. Verse 14, God said. Verse 20, God said. Verse 24, God said. And then at the end of each of these chunks of text, we have there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse... 13, there was evening and morning the third day. Verse 19, there was evening and morning the fourth day. There was evening and morning the fifth day. And then there was evening and morning the sixth day at the end. So you see there is a poetic structure to chapter 1 of Genesis. But it doesn't stop there. God saw, verse 4, that the light was good. In verse uh, 10, and God saw that it was good. In verse 12, and God saw that it was good after he made the seeds and the plants. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Once again, verse 21, God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good. And then verse 31, God saw that it was good. It's not perfectly symmetrical, you notice, right? Because you would expect there to be one here, but there's not. But then there's two on the last day, right? But it's still this, preserving the same number of times. And then this is something else interesting. God creates the heavens on day one, and then on day four, God populates the heavens with uh, birds and that sort of thing. God creates the waters on day two, and then God populates the waters on day five. And then God creates the land on day three, and then, guess what? God populates the land on day six. So what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you here about Genesis chapter one is that it's not just a description of what happened. The, the structure of how it describes what happened is itself important. You see this in the Psalms, too. In the Psalms, you'll see that there's repetition in a particular Psalm, and, it, and there's a structure to it. Like, take, for example, Psalm 119. Have you ever read that one? It's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Well over 100 verses, like 170-something verses in Psalm 119. Every verse is about the law. Every verse is about the Torah, about the commandments, the statutes, that sort of thing. Except for, I think, one. There's like one that's not. But, uh, you know, it, it's expressing a certain structure. So it is in Genesis chapter 1 that with the style and the structure of it, we see God's design. Even how it's just described, there's a structure to it. So it is with our universe, which is what chapter 1 is talking about here, our created order, there is a, a certain level of order and design in our universe. And it was good. It was good. Seven times it was good. So God declares it's good. It's well designed. I mean, this does not look like something that was, was held together by duct tape, right? I mean, the universe is, is quality craftsmanship. And just consider God's plant design for a moment. Where do plants come from? Well, they come from seeds, right? Now, are seeds alive or dead? I've got a dead and, a, and I've got an alive. I don't know the right answer to that, to be honest with you. I do know that they don't seem to do much when they're just sitting there on the table, right? And you can keep a, a seed in a packet for a long time. I, I don't know how long they last, but they just kind of sit there. And then if you plant a seed, suddenly 
this like miracle of life occurs, right? And it's just totally weird if you, if you really think about it, because if you were to unleash the generative power of the seed, what would you, what would you do? Would you make a paste and rub it to an existing plant? Would you attach it to an animal skin? Would you electrocute the seed? No, we put it in dirt. <laughs> like of all places to find like the full expression of life in a seed, we put it in dirt. And then what we do to that dirt is we put water on it, which of course makes mud. And now we've got really something that causes life to grow. It's just so bizarre if you really think about it. I mean, why is it that way? God designed it that way. And I think it's so cool. And then of course, plants consume water and sunlight and carbon dioxide. Think about how unendangered those three things are. I mean, sunlight, endless supply, right? Carbon dioxide, we're breathing it out all the time. And then what was the other one? Water and dirt. I mean, the, the planet is full of water and dirt. <laughs> then you think about how God designed seeds, right? One seed grows a plant, and that plant, in turn, produces many more seeds. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship, if you think about it, right? One seed will generate a plant which will produce a dozen, a hundred, a thousand more seeds on top of it. What does that tell you about God? Well, I think at the very least, it tells us that God is pretty awesome at designing things. It tells us that God is not stingy. He's generous. If every seed produced a plant with one more seed, or maybe just two more, in case one died, right? That's like kind of a stingy strategy. It's not like that. I mean, think about like a, a, a piece of corn, right? Every one of those is a seed. And one plant produces multiple ears of corn. That's ridiculous. That's just abundant generous. I, don't know, I think it's cool to, to, to reason from creation back to God. You'll see why this all is relevant to the kingdom in a minute. Have you ever seen someone mowing on the side of the highway? Why do you think they do that? Nobody walks over there. Yeah, it will get overgrown. If you don't mow on the sides of the road, even, even uh, on this road here, they do that. Because if, if you don't mow it, eventually Bushes grow, trees grow, stuff just starts to grow because seeds from plants are floating through the air at different times of the year and they eventually plant themselves and then they grow and then eventually they'll encroach on the road and if you wait long enough, they will just legit take over the entire road and then there won't be a road anymore. I mean, that's how robust God's creation is. I mean, think about the weeds that grow between bricks and sidewalks. Nobody plants those, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just a very good, strong creation. In Genesis 1.26, let's look at that. It says that God gave us dominion. This is one of those super important verses in the Bible. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so what we read here is that the first thing God says about humans is that we are in his image and that we should have dominion. That's pretty cool. That's a good starting place for the human race, wouldn't you say? So we start out in his image and 
we are given dominion over everything else on the earth. And then in verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what that tells us is that we are in some way similar to God. If you're, if you're in somebody's image, then you're similar to God. And I would suggest to you that similarity in the context is that our commissioning to rule. God commissions the first humans to rule. He says, let them have dominion. God himself has dominion, right? So, I mean, that's a big part of the image of God is that we are also capable of ruling. I mean, can you imagine if God committed the entire earth to the rulership of cats? We'd never get anything done. You know, and the cats don't want to work together. Each want to do their own thing. Everything's on their terms. The world wouldn't be, it wouldn't develop over time. That's for sure. He gave it to humans to develop and to rule over. And then in verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Once again, you have dominion. But in addition to that dominion, the first thing we read in verse 28 is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, so our two uh, mandates are to re reproduce and rule the world. That's what God originally gave the human race. And then in verse 29, God gives his people food, and that includes vegetables and grains and fruits. And it's paradise. It's, it's all good. I mean, there's, there's nothing evil about it. The, the first two people are naked, unashamed, in paradise, told to rule over the world and have lots of kids. I mean, I mean is there any downside to this <laughs> situation? There's only one little caveat, which was, hey, there's this one tree over here. Don't eat from that because it's going to kill you. I mean, that's really all there was in the garden. It was a really wonderful time. But that's God's good creation. Another text that's really important is Isaiah 45, 18. Go ahead and write that down. Isaiah 45, 18. And this is a verse that tells us about God's plan, ultimately, with the world. Let me just read it to you here. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. We saw that in Genesis, right? What God says is reproduce. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what God originally wants. This is pre-fall. I'm not talking about the fall and sin and all the rest of that. I'm talking about the original design of God. The original design of God is to have people in relationship with each other and in relationship with Him who are ruling over the world and who are filling it with other people. Well, we, once again, Isaiah 45, 18 says that God did not create it empty. He did not create it a vain or empty or futile or waste place. God created it to be inhabited. That's what he wanted. Now I ask you, if everybody ends up off planet in the end, how does that agree with God's intention? You see what I'm saying? Because it turns out, the better you develop your creation theology, 
the more accurate your eschatology is going to be. All right, because what happens in the beginning and how everything started out before sin entered the picture is in many ways a mirror of what will happen in the end once sin is removed from the picture. And so you see that very pattern in the Bible itself. For example, in Genesis, we read about a river flowing out of Eden. At the very end of the Bible, the last couple of chapters in Revelation, there's a river again flowing from God's throne. In Genesis, we find the tree of life. Hey, guess what? In Revelation, the tree of life is back. And in Revelation, it says that it produces its fruit every month. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. In Genesis, it says that there was gold and bdellum and onyx. In Revelation, it just goes crazy listing out all these precious stones that make up the city of God in chapter 21. In Genesis, it says that God walked in the cool of the evening. In Revelation, we read how God dwells with His people. It says that His name will be in our foreheads and we will see His face, is what it says in Revelation. In Genesis, we are in a garden. In Revelation, we're in a city. So there's a, it's not an exact mirror image there, right? There's a, there's a difference between a garden and a city. A garden is a nice place and there's, there's a lot of beauty there. A city is itself a development. It's something that humans work together and build up. And it has culture. That's what I love about cities. They have culture. There's art. There are shows. There's stuff to do. Whereas in a garden, it's like you go there for rest. But, you know, it can get a little, you know, you can get bored. In Genesis, everything is probationary. In Revelation, it's permanent, so there's another difference there. In Genesis, the first people are in a probationary status. In other words, they have to continue to do what God has said, or else they are going to fall and get consequences, which is what they, in fact, did. In Revelation, there's no indication that that's the case anymore. It's more of a permanent status of you've been through a life of sin and, and then repentance and righteousness, and now you are... You are granted eternal life. In Genesis, Satan deceives. The serpent is there in Genesis. And then in Revelation, Satan is eliminated. In Genesis, God curses the ground. In Revelation, it says there will be no more curse. In Genesis, there's the first marriage at the end of chapter 2. And then in Revelation, there's the last marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Genesis and Revelation really do have a lot in common. The first three chapters of the entire Bible and the last three chapters of the entire Bible. And so this kind of goes with this idea of a cycle where what God wanted in the beginning, He will eventually get in the end. Now, to get from the beginning to the end, we have this winding story of all the crazy things that happen in between. But eventually, it really does go back to what God originally wanted in the beginning. And now this winding story is what we want to look at now. And in particular, I want to build for you a biblical theology of the kingdom hope. The way I know to do that is to just kind of stop at critical points throughout the Bible because I only have so many minutes to get this done. So I want to look at Abraham. I want to look at David. I want to look at some of the prophets. I want to look at Jesus. And I want to look at Paul. What do you say? Let's do the whole Bible on the kingdom in one lecture. Might as well, right? So, 
Genesis chapter 17. Go ahead and turn over to that. We start with Abraham. Abraham is so important. We'll, we'll see more about why Abraham is so important in, uh, in a couple of lectures here when I talk about God's character. But in Genesis chapter 17, God and Abraham make an agreement. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's the promise God makes to Abraham. God says, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The three most important things I want to mention here is that Abraham is called the father of a multitude of nations. Typically, when we think of Abraham, we think of him as a patriarch, as the father of the people of Israel. But the promise God made to him, in fact, what the word Abraham means, is a father of a multitude of nations, not just one nation. Okay? And then the second thing is that God promises to be God to you. I know that's kind of a strange way to phrase it, but that's what he says. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is going to go not just for Abraham, but also for his descendants. And then the last aspect I want to draw attention to is that God promises to give the land to Abraham and to his descendants. Look down in uh, verse 8 once again. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the idea is not that Abraham and his descendants are going to inherit the land for a time, but forever. And then the next major person we want to look at is David. So flip over to 1 Chronicles 17, and we'll look at David here. It's pretty easy to remember because it's 1711. It's like 711. 1711. First Chronicles 1711 to 14. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house, in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established for a thousand years. No, forever, right? Did you see that? It says forever, over and over again. So we see here in God's promises to David. Now, Abraham is something like 2000 BC. David is like 1000. BC. So there's a thousand years between these two promises, but God's old. So I mean, like for him, it's like not that big a deal, right? And you know, this 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 whole theme is something that develops over thousands of years, which I think is pretty cool. But David, to David, God says 
he's going to raise up one of his sons and that son will build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. What God is, is promising David here is the dream of every king. A king wants their son to take over. It's the way kingdoms typically work. And they want their son to be established and last a long time. And what God is saying here in 1 Chronicles 17:11 is that he's going to raise up one of his offspring of his own sons. That one is going to build him a house. And it says in verse 12, he's going to establish his throne forever. And then we learn how this descendant is going to be the son of God. You see that in verse 13? I will be to him a father. Look, if God says, I'll be to you a father, you are a daughter or a son of God. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. So he's going to be son of God. He's going to be established forever. He's going to be a descendant of David. And he's going to build God a house. Now, of course, we know that David's son, Solomon, did build the temple. But it doesn't seem as though his throne was established forever. Solomon died after 40 years of reigning. So it didn't seem like it lasted forever. And in fact, the very throne of David and Solomon and all these kings, it no longer stands this day, does it? You can't go to Jerusalem and find a king there. You can find a prime minister. So there are these promises, and they're just kind of hanging out there in the Old Testament, waiting for a descendant to come along. Let's take a look at the Psalms. There are a few Psalms about the kingdom that are important. But before I get to that, I want to emphasize that God's promises to Abraham are about the land. God's promises to David are about a ruler. And what is the kingdom? It's the idea of the land with a king over it. So this is, this is how this develops. Then we look at the Psalms and we find in Psalm 2, for example. So let's take a look at just three quick Psalms here. 2, 6 to 9, 37, and 110. All right, so Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is a deliberate echo of God's promise to David. God's promise to David is that he will have a son, he will establish his throne on the throne of David, right? And so what this is saying here is that God's saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so there, this is a messianic prophecy. How do we know it's a messianic prophecy? Because it's, it's echoing the statements made about this descendant of David, the son of David. Furthermore, earlier on in the psalm, it actually uses the word Messiah in verse 2. It's translated as anointed, but it's the same as the word Messiah. A Messiah is an anointed one. And what God is saying is that there is going to be this one. He's going to be his son, and he's going to give him the nations as their inheritance. So we have, with Abraham, we have the land. With David, we have a promise of really a ruler, 
or a king. And then here, what we're seeing is that he's going to have the nations as his inheritance. List for me some nations. Israel. Israel, sure. United States, yeah. What other nations are there? Netherlands. Netherlands, right. Yeah, it says that he's going to get the nations as his inheritance. We start thinking of like names of nations, we realize, wow, that's really a political kind of thing to say, isn't it? That he's going to have these nations as his inheritance. And then we look at Psalm 37 in verse 9. It says, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 10, In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance. Verse 22, For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 29, The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on the wicked when the wicked are cut off. Over and over again, we have two alternative destinies. The righteous, the humble, those who wait on the Lord, they will inherit the land. The wicked, those who reject God, those who pursue wickedness of whatever type, they are cut off from the land. So you have inheriting the land or being cut off from the land. Those are the options for people. Then we get to Psalm 110 and we see this prophecy about the Messiah. It says in Psalm 110.1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Kind of an interesting psalm, right? It's pretty short, only six, was it six, seven verses. The real focus point I want to bring your attention to is the first few verses there where God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now look, if Dave, this is a Psalm of David. If David's calling him Lord, it's got to be the Messiah. That's the only one who would have greater authority than David himself. David was the top dog in his own day. He was the, he was the king of Israel. Um, and he's saying that God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So this is a prophecy of one who is to come that would sit at God's right hand. Later on, we learn about how Jesus ascended into heaven, fulfilling this prophecy. That's not really what I want to focus on here. What I want to focus on here is that word until. You see that in verse 1? He says, sit at my right hand until what? I make your enemies your footstool. All right, so Jesus is at the right hand of God until something happens. What is that thing that happens? Some sort of a battle, some sort of a conflict where Jesus returns and, he, and God makes his enemies your footstool. And then when that happens, we get verse 2. It says that 
The Lord sends forth from Zion, that's Jerusalem, your mighty scepter. Scepter is like that staff that the king holds. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And so this psalm, once again, teaches us about how this Messiah is going to be authorized by God to take over the nations and to rule in the midst of his enemies. Psalm 37 talks about the land or destruction. Those are the two possibilities there. We'll get back to that in the next lecture. But my point here is to say that this whole kingdom idea is not just something we find in the book of Daniel. It's not just something we find in the Gospel of Matthew. It's something we find in Genesis from the beginning. The very first things God ever says to humankind is have dominion. That's the first thing He says to us over the earth. He puts us on the earth and He says have dominion. Then as we go through, God makes a promise to Abraham. Oh, it's going to be through his descendants that this, this is going to unfold, this promise. And then a descendant of Abraham named David comes along and God says, all right, look, it's going to be one of your descendants that's going to sit on the throne. Meanwhile, we have these Psalms and then prophecies as well. The prophecies are, are very significant. And I'm not really sure how many I can cover with you because there are a lot. Uh, all right, so Isaiah 2 talks about this last day. In fact, in Isaiah 2, verse 2, we read, It shall come to pass in the latter days. Uh, actually, in, in the uh, Greek translation of this, it's the word eschatos. Well, it's eschatase, but that's just dative plural feminine. It shall come about in the last days, or in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Absolutely beautiful kingdom prophecy. Can you imagine a world where there are no militaries? Do you have any idea how much, for example, the United States spends on its military. What if you could use all of that money to do you know, positive things as opposed to defense spending, right? Like building things or helping problems that are, that are in the world. Now multiply that by all the nations. What if every nation just used their, they just got rid of their military spending and they used all that money for, I don't know, education or building cool stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, not be, I'm not being very creative here, am I? But uh, the, the whole point is that in the age to come, that they won't even train for war anymore. It just won't be part of that, uh, of, of our minds, of what we think about and what we do. And it says here that also that God is going to be teaching us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. God is already teaching you who are in this class right now. But there are many in the world that don't have any interest in learning from God. In that day, they will. The nations will come. Many peoples will come and say, let's go to the mountain of the Lord so that we can learn from Him and walk in His paths. 
So this is a, a vision of that kingdom age. So uh, if, if I was going to ask you, all right, give me a, a, a couple of bullet points from this prophecy, what would you say? Peace. Peace, thank you. Give me one more. How about justice? Yeah, justice, if, if God is judging the nations, then you have justice, right? And it's not just national justice or local justice, it's international justice. Justice for all the nations. Uh, all right, let's look at chapter 11, verse 6. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, we had peace here. That was between nations, right? Now we have peace between animals. Isn't that something? And we also have the knowledge of God pervading the new world. The knowledge of God will cover, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Take a look at chapter 25, verse 6. This is a dinner party. Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God, one of the most beautiful prophecies picked up in Revelation later. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Hmm. So we have here a prophecy about death destroyed. No more death. It's also in the context of a dinner party where you've got, I guess, steak and wine. I mean, they go together pretty well. And you've got God wiping away the tears from all faces. No, uh, no more reproach. We have, to, we have to kind of translate that into modern English. What is a reproach? Does anybody know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, you're talking to somebody and they say to you, what are you, one of those Christians? What are you, one of those Bible thumpers? And, you, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> right? And there's that like awkward moment where they've got all this baggage against Christianity and you don't really have a choice of whether or not you're going to carry that baggage because they're just like dumped it on you. That's the reproach of Christ. Jesus says that all who want to follow him are going to suffer insults, are going to suffer persecution, are going to suffer for the sake of his name. It's just the way it is. It's the way it was in his own time, and it's the way it is in our time. That if you're going to follow him, you're going to face awkwardness. You're going to face difficulty. You're going to face exclusion at times. It's just the way it is. And 
In this day, that reproach, that insult, that shame, that embarrassment, whatever it is, will be taken away. It just won't be there anymore. We'll be enjoying God, enjoying each other, enjoying this dinner party, and we're going to have the tears wiped away from our eyes. I love this part too in verse 9 where it says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. I mean, it's just really a cool prophecy. All right, Isaiah 35. This talks about the healing of the land itself. So I'm going to just call that restoration of the land. And I'm also going to call it restoration of the uh, people. All right. And that will be clear what that means in just a second. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Deserts don't rejoice, typically. They just sit there and it's hot and not much goes on. Maybe you have like a little scorpion crawling around, snake slithers by, maybe like a billy goat. In this day it says, the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble needs. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert, and the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. It, and it goes on from there. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but it talks about the restoration of the land where the deserts are, are blossoming, and it talks about the restoration of people. The blind will see, the lame will walk, that sort of thing. All right, so that's another one of these prophecies. I, yeah, so that's 2, 11, 25, and 35. So between, between just four chapters of Isaiah, we're able to get all these aspects of the kingdom. So we know that it's, it's on the land. We learned that from Genesis, the creation, and from Abraham. We learn that there's a ruler over it, a son of David. He's going to rule over the nations from the Psalms. But we also learn that in that day there will be no more reproach. There will be peace between nations, justice, peace between animals. We'll have a knowledge of God. Death will be destroyed. Hello. Restoration of the land and restoration of the people. So that's some good news. <laughs> right? The kingdom is good news. All right. Then we get to Daniel finally. And Daniel is really the hinge. Daniel is super important for studying the kingdom because Daniel is the one that uses the K-word. Daniel is the one that uses the K-word. Daniel is the one that starts to use the phrase kingdom. In none of any of the scriptures I've read to you this morning so far have we ever seen the word kingdom until now. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And this is a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had about the various ages that were yet to come. And it says in Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's a huge verse. It's absolutely critical because Daniel 2.44 tells us that the phrase is, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That phrase, once we get to the New Testament, generates two ideas. One is the kingdom of God, and the other is the kingdom of heaven. Daniel 2.44 is likely the inspiration behind that way of talking about the kingdom, that it's either called the kingdom of God or it's called the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And this kingdom is not temporary. It's not, we're not talking about the kingdom of Israel like in the time of David or the time of, who was the last one, uh, Zedekiah. We're not talking about the, the time of Zedekiah or these other kings in between Saul and Zedekiah. What we're talking about is a kingdom that is going to be established. It's future from the time of Daniel. Daniel lives after Zedekiah is already dead. The last king of Judah has already perished. Daniel lives then. And he's, and he's seeing a vision of what is to come. And what God is communicating to him is that there is going to be a kingdom yet to be established, which itself will never be destroyed, won't be left to another people. It's going to break in pieces all the other kingdoms, and it will stand forever. Pretty powerful prophecy. Pretty powerful prophecy. That's a triple P. Uh, Daniel 7, 13. I've got these verses up here for you, but Daniel chapter 7 is another critical verse because, or another critical chapter because it has a vision of these different beasts that come out of the waters. And in this chapter, we learn a lot about what is yet to come, these different kingdoms and so on. I'm just going to focus on a few of these verses that I have written up here. But John, uh, Daniel 7.13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, is the genesis point for the prophecy of the Son of Man. So Daniel 2.44 teaches us about the, or it begins that term for kingdom. And then Daniel 7.13-14, we learn about the Son of Man. The destiny of the Son of Man is to receive from the Ancient of Days a kingdom that will be over all nations, once again. And it will last forever. And then we learn in verse 18 that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then in verse 22, we read, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Or verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So what we see here from these other verses, 18, 22, and 27, is that it's not just for the Son of Man, but it's also for the saints. 
or the other phrase is the people of the saints that will actually inherit the kingdom and enjoy it forever. So Daniel is the hinge that brings us from the Hebrew Bible into the New Testament way of talking about the age to come and what God plans to do with this old world. And so when we get to the time of Jesus, Jesus doesn't ever explain what the kingdom is. He just talks about it. And he says, look, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He says that, and people just know what the kingdom means. Like, they understand what he's talking about. Why? Because of all of this and a thousand other verses I didn't take you to, because I'm trying to be nice to you. <laughs> Might not feel like it, but, uh, but, I, but I am trying to exercise some restraint here. I just actually taught an entire 15 lectures on the kingdom of God, so, you know, compressing it down to one is a little tricky. Um, but we'll, we'll get there. So, like I said, Jesus, how does Jesus talk about it? Matthew 1. When we get to the New Testament, having just surveyed the Old Testament on the kingdom, when we get to the New Testament, we, we encounter Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This verse right here ties together three individuals, right? You have Jesus Christ, you have Abraham, you have David. This is tying together everything. You see that? God had made promises to Abraham that someday his descendants would inherit the land. God had made promises to David that one day his son would rule over that land. Matthew opens audaciously. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word Christ means king of the kingdom. The word Christ means Messiah. Okay, so he, he identifies Jesus as that Messiah and then says that he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. I mean, this is just like, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament prophecies and promises, then you're like, what are you talking, wait, Matthew, are you saying that he's the one? And Matthew's like, yeah, and that's my first sentence in my gospel. <laughs> and, then he's, he, and then what he does is he, he, he goes and he proves that Jesus is a legitimate claim to the throne of David. How do you do that? You go through his genealogy. You list out all the you know, fathers and grandfathers and so on, all the way back to Abraham. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, in our society, that's not something that we normally do. It's not like when somebody's running for president, they're like, well, my father and my grandfather, my great-grandfather, yada, yada. No, they don't do that. They don't trace their name back to royalty. But if you want to be the Jewish Messiah, you darn well better be able to do that because that's your qualification. That's your you know, certificate of authenticity. So Jesus gets immediately identified in the beginning of the gospel as the son of David and the son of Abraham. But when we look at his life, he actually talks about the kingdom a lot. In fact, Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom. If you had lunch with Jesus, he would talk about the kingdom, even if it was a just random Tuesday. Because that's what he was on about. From his birth, Jesus, the, uh, the angel, came to his mother, to Mary, and he said, he said to her, Your son will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's what the angel said to Mary. Jesus isn't even conceived yet, much less born. 
The angel says to, to Mary, look, you're going to have a son. He's going to be awesome. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that, right? But not only that, that he's going to be great, but he's also going to be called the son of the Most High, and he's going to get the throne of his father, David, and he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. I mean, these are some pretty awesome promises for a mother to receive about her son-to-be. And then when we see Jesus in action in his ministry, his ministry is just saturated with kingdom activity. I mean, think about this prophecy over here. It talked about how people will be restored. Jesus healed the blind, didn't he? Jesus, Jesus got the lame up. He raised the lame up. You remember the, the lame man at uh, the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5? Jesus came up to him and says, Do you want to be healed? Strange question, right? The guy's like on the, on the ground on a mat for 38 years. It's like, what do you think? No, I'm just kidding. But he says to him, Well, I don't have anybody to put me in the water when he gets stirred up. Jesus responds, get up, take up your bed, and walk. The guy gets up. You know what I mean? It's just like, who does that? Jesus is doing kingdom stuff throughout his ministry. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He gathers 12 disciples. 12 is the number of tribes of Israel. Around himself, he's regathering Israel. He's starting out with a new movement that is eventually going to culminate in this kingdom age. And he is claiming to be the king of the kingdom, the Messiah. In one place, in Matthew chapter 19... Go ahead and write that down. Matthew 19, 28. Uh, we see that Jesus promises rulership to his followers. Matthew 19, 28. They ask him the question, Jesus, we've left everything. What do we get? He replies, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus promises that to his followers, but it's not just for those 12. It's also for anyone who would follow Jesus because Matthew 25, 31 tells us that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. It's just like all the prophecies we read, right, about the nations. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus is on the day of judgment going to divide people up. And to those who did what he said in this parable here, Jesus says, To my sheep, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus talks about the kingdom a lot. The Apostle Paul talked about the kingdom a lot. In the book of Acts, we read about how he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians. There's this one really funny incident. In 1 Corinthians 6, super important verse. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is dealing with Christians who are suing each other. They're suing each other. They're taking each other to court. And Paul is livid. He's furious. He's like, what is wrong with you? You're showing the world that Christianity doesn't work. Don't you have one wise person in your group that can figure this out? Don't you realize you're going to rule the world? You can't figure out this issue that you have? It's really one of these moments where he gets a little sarcastic here. 
He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Hello, people. We're supposed to be the judges, the rulers of the age to come. And if the world is to be judged for you, by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And he goes on from there. Verse 9, he lists out a bunch of uh, sins. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He lists out all these sins. And then in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, just like Jesus, just like Daniel, just like the prophets before, just like the Psalms, just like Abraham and David, all of the entire Bible is leaning towards, leading towards this climactic moment that we read about at the very end, in the end of the whole Bible, the book of Revelation, where God comes down and dwells with people on a renewed earth in perfect harmony. It's just like what we saw in the beginning. And that is this doctrine of the kingdom of God. If you're curious about the kingdom and you want to learn more about it, I have a website. It's called kingdomuprising.com. And you can check that out if you want to. Well, that's it for this lecture. You can check out the notes for this on restitutio.org or by looking at the show notes in your device. Also, I have links there to kingdomuprising.com, which is another site that I manage solely focused on the kingdom of God. I've got a nice video class by Victor Gluckin on there about the kingdom. You can check out my own kingdom of God class, about 15 lectures on that, starting back at podcast 84. So you can just go back in your feed to see that, or you can listen to that online as well. Also, we got a new review. Bill Schlegel writes... The Restitutio podcast covers a broad range of biblical and cultural topics. The host is intelligent, has a sharp wit, and a good sense of humor. <laughs> oh boy, let's hope so. I have recommended the podcast to other adult family and friends, and they enjoyed it as well. I even got my 15-year-old son interested in a recent podcast. He was listening attentively. Well, thanks so much for submitting a review to Apple Podcasts. It really does help people to find this show, and so I thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to navigate all that and type that in there. I'm excited to hear about your 15-year-old son. That's uh, that's that's one of the biggest compliments I think we've ever received here at Restitutio is that even a 15-year-old would listen attentively. Um, and so the point here at Restitutio is to restore authentic Christianity, to do the research, to get back to the Bible, to cut through tradition and to find authentic ways to live out our faith in the present in light of the original form that we find in the scriptures. And this, should, this really should be relevant to 15-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 80-year-olds and everywhere in between to women, to men, and people from all different nations and languages. So, I mean, obviously this podcast is in English, so that's, a, that's limiting, but this is a message that I am really excited to get out because so many people haven't even heard of any alternatives to the classical doctrinal packages propounded week by week in churches around the world. 
so I thank you so much, everyone who's written reviews. And if you haven't yet written a review and you've meant to, why not do it today? That would be great. Also, Sarah writes in on episode on episode 163, Jesus, God's Agent, and says, Thank you for an excellent presentation, Sean. Although the concept of divine agency is sadly foreign to most mainstream Christians, biblical scholars have long been aware of its central role in the scriptures. Here are a few quotes that might interest your listeners. All right, so here is where Sarah lays out these quotes. They're they're really good. So here we go. The first one is from Craig Kester uh, from the Anchor Yale Bible on the book of Revelation. He writes, quote, The heavenly chorus that acclaimed God worthy, Revelation 4.11, now acclaims Christ worthy, Revelation 5.9. Yet despite the shift in focus, the Lamb does not take God's place, but is honored because he serves as God's agent carrying out God's purposes, end quote. A second quote here that Sarah puts out is from Joel Green from a Luke commentary, the New International Commentary of the New Testament, a by and large very good commentary set. He says, quote, If a slave might function as a stand-in for his master, how much more might a Lord's son, particularly since the notion of agency was intrinsic to that of sonship, The son would have the full authority of his father, the owner of the vineyard, and as heir would also represent the father's interests, end quote. And then the last one comes to us from a commentary on Daniel. I guess Sarah is really into the commentaries. Well done, Sarah. Uh, This is from John F. Wolvort, and he writes about Daniel 2, 4 through 6, quote, Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid great honor to Daniel. The word for homage can denote the worship of, of a deity. It is quite clear, however, from the king's conversation with Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar merely regarded Daniel as a worthy priest and representative of God and was honoring him in this category. In other words, even the king understood that Daniel was the ambassador and representative of God, but not deity himself. It is probably for this reason that Daniel permitted the king to do what he did. An interesting parallel is found in Josephus, recording the instance where Alexander the Great bowed before the high priest of the Jews. When Parmenion, one of his generals, asked him why, when ordinarily all men would prostrate themselves before Alexander the Great, he had prostrated himself before the high priest of the Jews, Alexander replied, It was not before him that I prostrated myself, but the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest." There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Sarah, for pointing those examples out. The principle of agency, it's found all throughout Scripture, and it's not all that common in our culture today. So this is just another example of where cultural sensitivity to the original context is key to understanding, especially, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's all I have time for today. We'll see you next time where we look at some confusing verses about the kingdom of God. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you'd like to add your voice to the mix on this episode about the Kingdom Hope, please come on to restitutio.org to find Podcast 166, The Kingdom Hope, and leave your comment there. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.